Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. We've got a really fascinating subject today um, and we're not frightened to tackle the big subjects. And today, the, one of the big subjects, gambling, addiction and such like, is going to be tackled with us with Patrick Chester, who is, I judging by his accent, from the good old US of A. Is that right, Patrick? I am indeed. Uh, Washington State, so we're, you know, up in the very northwestern corner of the of the country here. Oh, it's beautiful. Seattle and all those city areas, Portland, Tacoma, is that all that sort of places? Sure, yeah. We're north, we're north of Seattle, you know, probably an hour and a half north of Seattle up here. We're actually closer to the Canadian border than we are to any other state, you know, up here. I remember traveling from Seattle to um, Vancouver on that little train that goes through. And um, there was a glorious moment where we suddenly discovered as we're going through, there's all these people waving at the train and all of them were nude. And there's obviously a nudist <laughs> beach on that line. It was the most surreal thing I've ever seen because it must have been... <laughs> You can all imagine all Americans are looking away because that's a terrible thing, and all the Canadians are waving out the window as well. So, yeah, really funny. it's funny. Yeah, we do things a little differently. Yay, <laughs> brilliant. Well, tell me a bit about yourself, Patrick, and, and a bit about your story. Sure. So, you know, I'm 49 years old, I'm married, I've got a couple of boys, you know, and I'm six years removed from what was a a pretty catastrophic time in my life and my family's life. You know, I started gambling pretty severely back in the, around 2005 and 2006. And I was working for myself and had access to money and not always my money, you know, customer's money and that sort of thing. And it, what started out as, is kind of a fun activity for me turned into, like I say, turned into a, a, a catastrophe that nearly cost me everything, landed me in jail. And six, so now here I am six years removed from that and living a life of recovery and trying to do the best I can to help educate people on what actually, what gambling addiction is yeah. and how to recognize it, how to help people that are suffering from it. And how to edu- how to just basically how to educate people on what what the dangers are of it. All right, great. Okay, well, that's a great sort of preview. So let's unpack a few of those things. So 
you know, you can you can get a group of ten blokes all playing the slot machines or playing cards or whatever it is. It doesn't, you know, one or two of those people are going to end up with a mild gambling addiction. Someone's going to end up with a severe one, and other people are just not affected at all. So what what's the what what's the way you got started? What's what's the trigger for people to actually become addicts? Do you think? You know, it's hard to say what the trigger is, Russell. It's it's I think it's different for a lot of people. For me, I I can go back to my childhood when I was really young with my father, and he would he would take us to these these parties. My my sister and I as, as kids, you know, and that was commonplace back then. And these parties were you know, a bunch of his friends and they were gambling and they were drinking and it was, they were, they were having a great time. And, you know, I, I think maybe that planted a seed in me. And then over time, I didn't recognize the dangers of gambling because to me, it was always portrayed as, as, as something that was fun and we can do it as a family. We can do it together. It's harmless. And before I knew it, it had taken over my life. And I, again, I don't know what the actual uh, trigger was or what the point the, the actual point of my demise was or where it started but before I knew it I was in so deep that I transitioned from something that was fun to something that had become my solution to my problems in my mind yeah the only way only way I was going to recover the only way I was going to repay all the debt or get myself out of the hole I was in was to keep gambling more and more and more and this thing progresses and they, it, it's it's by the time a lot of people recognize it, it's too late. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you at what stage you did recognize it, because I'm guessing there's a point where you suddenly realize that this is not... I'll tell you. Well, go yeah. On. Yeah, please. It, 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 uh, it got to the point where I was, I was, this would have been around 2014. Uh, well, it was before that. It was more like 2012, 2013, where I started committing crimes. Because I had, I had, I had exhausted all financial avenues. I, I was no longer able to work for myself because I had been reported to the state. I was working as a contractor. I had been reported to the state. And so anybody that wanted to do business with me would check my licensing and check with the state and they would find out they would see all these complaints. Well, don't hire this guy because he took our deposit, but he never finished the job. Cause what I would do is I would, I was gambling with other people's money. You know, I would take job, I would take, a five or ten thousand dollar deposit from somebody or more and instead of putting that money towards the project that i was working on i would put it towards my gambling wow. and so i think it was about that time you know like i said 2012 2013 when i started committing crimes and in the back of my mind i knew it was wrong and i, I knew at some point it was going to catch up with me and so it all kind of came to a head there at the end of 2014 where i had um, I'd actually rented some, some heavy equipment from a, uh, you know, like an excavator and a bobcat to do some work or under the guise of doing some work when, when in fact my, my whole plan was to sell the equipment, take the money and gamble with it. And I did that. Yeah. And, but in my mind, I'm not, I'm not doing this with the intent of never returning this guy's, this is how sick and twisted the, the brain is for somebody that has a severe addiction like I did. I was convincing myself that I was going to somehow win that money back, go back and buy the equipment back that I had sold, return it to the guy I had rented it from. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's it was about that time where I started to realize that this had I had definitely crossed a line. And I was um 
you know, it got to the point where I was contemplating suicide. Okay, so before we get to that, it, it always it always amazes me when you talk to people like this that nobody else around them seems to know about it. Is it because you looked normal, appeared normal? Um, how, yeah. how, do you, how do you how how is that possible? It's it's a great that's a great question, and I and I and I talk about this a lot too when I speak to groups or at, at treatment centers or wherever. You can recognize a drug addict. You can recognize an alcoholic because you can see it physically on them. It takes a toll yeah. on them. You know, you can see it in their face. You can see it in their, their skin color. Gambling addicts, you don't, you don't see that. Sure, inside, they're, they're a mess. Like inside, I was stressed out all the time. I was, I was confused. I was all of that. But we have a way of, of we're really creative. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you can't see it physically on us. We're really creative with our lies and everything else and moving money around. My wife. My wife trusted me to handle our bills and to handle our mortgage payments and that sort of thing. She just trusted that I was taking care of it. And when something would come in the mail, I would always divert the mail so she wouldn't see that the bills weren't getting paid. And so I was years and years of hiding this. And, uh, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I did a pretty good job of it for a long period of time. And, you know, the chickens came home to roost. Do, do you think, do you think that? process because i mean they talk about gamble addiction has been about the dopamine high that you're constantly striving right. to achieve do you think that's actually part of the process that the deceit the the constant living on your wits and your nerves actually there's a little bit of enjoyment in that as well i think so you know i think it's all part of it it's um and it's almost like there are a lot of as many aspects of this that just are sick and twisted and that was part of it you know getting myself talking myself out of a situation that was really not making any sense to anybody but being convincing yeah being convincing to my wife being convincing to my in-laws or whoever when they had questions and questions like i say towards the last last year or two there were questions popping up and things weren't adding up and, and people were getting phone calls about me and this wasn't making sense over here but i would talk my way out of it yeah and convince him or so i thought i mean i don't i know you know i don't know that i fully 100 convinced everybody that all things that all things were good but you know there was a, a certain sense of satisfaction again and talking myself out of a certain mess you know yeah. there must have been that sense of escaping you know showing how clever you were you know dodging the bullets almost the ducking and the diving there it must be part of the because you're fooling you're fooling everybody i mean i you know you're fooling yourself but you're fooling everybody as well it must be quite it must be part of the illness mustn't it it's, it's part of the illness and again it's not it, it's it's there were days I'll, I'll tell you russell there were days where i would i would i would whether my wife was at work or she called me in a panic over something and i just got off the phone with my wife and she was in tears and i maybe spent a half an hour lying to her yeah. And I would hang up the phone and I would just stare. I would stare off into the distance for, for 15, 20 minutes and just a huge sense of uh, sadness. You know, how can I do this? How yeah. can I continue to lie? How can I continue to manipulate the most important person in my life, the most important people in my life? It's because I was sick, you know, and that's what addiction is. And a lot of people, it's hard for people to on the outside to, to really understand it. And I didn't either until I went to treatment. And that's another thing that maybe we can talk about in a minute, but oh, yeah. 
you know, you get up, you, 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 for me, I had to decompress and I had to figure out what was going on inside my head. Yeah. Why was I doing the things I was doing? And I'm guessing, and, and you're talking about it in a very calm, matter of fact way, but you know, you, one has to be accountable for those things that you've done. And there is a day of reckoning and we're sort of coming to that, aren't we? But um, so how did it all come crushing down around your ears then? Yeah, I call it my, uh, my comeuppance, you know, there was, yeah. that was, a, that was a day that was, it was either going to be me killing myself. And I, like I say, um, I was at that point where I was starting to trying to figure out ways to do that or, um, go to treatment or jail or both. And in my case, it was both. I went to treatment and then I went to jail. And so what happened was, you know, back in about 2013, I, I had some uh, criminal charges brought against me. And then again, in 2014, and that the legal system takes a while to play out, you know, so it took about two years for, for those two, they were theft cases is what they were. They were, they were combined. Um, and it took about two years for those to play itself out to the point where I just ended up pleading guilty and accepting whatever sentence the judge felt was um, appropriate. And so, but before that happened, I had, I had reached out to a family member uh, and, and was via email and, and said, hey, look, I've got a gambling problem and I can't get a handle on it. Um, it's interesting the way it played out. My wife and I were in Arizona um, and had just come back. We were living at her folks place at the time because we didn't have a place to live due to my negligence. Um, and so we came back and then the very next day I couldn't, I went to work or told my wife I was going to work. That was a lie. I didn't have any work to do at that point, but I got a call from uh, my father-in-law about three o'clock in the afternoon the next day and he says look pat we all know what's going on now you're not coming back to our house tonight go get yourself a hotel room and we will talk to you tomorrow and what happened was they put to, put together a um, hastily put together an, an intervention and the next day we all sat in a room and it's just like you see on tv i walk into this room and there's my father-in-law, my wife's crying, my brother-in-law, my sister, my mom, my sister-in-law, and everybody's crying. And there's a um, interventionist there. And I was on a plane five hours later to Minnesota for treatment. So, so again, before we get there, I'm, I'm always interested, you know, during the slide almost, because you almost see this as a slide and that, that might be the wrong analogy to have. Was there a place where at the beginning, someone could have stopped you someone could have reached out you could have reached out there was a there was a way of saving you is that like an early warning indicator for example be, before that whole catastrophic house of cards you know went down is there a way is there something like that that exists russell there yeah there were many there were many points you know and i look back on this and you know it's it's of all the regrets i have it's this is probably the biggest one because there were certain junctures, you know, back in yes. 2010, 2011, things were happening where my wife would question what I was doing or what was going on here. This doesn't seem right. And I had, those were, those were points in time where I could have exposed myself. Basically I look back on it. I could have just exposed myself and said, this is what's going on. Yeah. I have a gambling issue. I don't think I can, can, can control it any longer. That's why you're getting phone calls. That's why 
all these weird things are happening. So I need help. But I was terrified. I was terrified that I would lose my marriage. And, you know, looking back on it now, it was a hundred times worse carrying this on in secret for so many years, as opposed to just owning it and exposing myself five years earlier. It is interesting, isn't it? It's a sort of a different form of courage that's needed to to do that asking for help. It's a bit like, you know, um, I remember talking to someone recently who'd um, decided not to get married on the morning of the wedding and not gone through with the wedding. Wow. But but that's a different sort of courage, isn't it? Because lots of people just get married and they live in a miserable way. And at the end of it, they end up being unhappy. And and it's a bit like you, isn't it? Is There's a courage deficit almost at the beginning. It's Maybe courage is the wrong word. But you know what I mean? There's this, you've got the courage to carry out all the, the lies and the deceit and all that sort of stuff, but the, the courage to come clean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I just, wonder, I just wonder if there's something there, you know, for people who, are, who might be in the same place as you were in 2010, 11, who are in the same place now today, who are thinking, maybe I should do, maybe I should stop. But where do I find you the know, courage from to stop? courage is the right word that's the word i use all the time i wish i wish i would have had the courage right to own it to expose myself earlier on i wish i would have and i didn't and i've i've come across people that um didn't it didn't progress i've come across people addicts that didn't let it get to the point where i got with me because they had the courage to say something to their spouse or their friend or something earlier on whereas i didn't and um you know, I just, I just kept searching for, for ways to get out of my mess. Like I said, and I didn't, I just always thought in my mind, I always had this, this, this fantasy that I would concoct in my mind that I was going to somehow win all this money yeah. and pay everybody off. And then I would just quit gambling and nobody would ever know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. You know, and that's, that's not real. It's not real. It's not realistic, but you, you can't, you know, try, try, having a reality conversation with somebody who's a full-blown addict yes you know it doesn't a, work <laughs> yeah it's almost a four it almost unhinges your mind isn't it so it's a form of schizophrenia or well it's sick psychosis I, yeah, or something yeah yeah that's exactly what it is i mean i had i had gone insane there's no there's and, and um you know when i when i went into treatment you know they do a full-blown assessment on you and they try and figure out where you're at mentally physically everything. And I was, I had gone insane. My, my brain was needed to be rewired and it took a long time. I mean, it, it wasn't just treatment. I mean, that was only 30 days. You know, what they did is they gave me kind of a base plan to work with and, and help me educate me and help me understand what was going on in my brain. But from then on, it's, it's a matter of, 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 I mean, it's a couple of years really before I started to see some of my behaviors from my addiction kind of go away. So okay, yeah, let's but, let's let's go back. So I distracted you out of your your narrative. So apologies for that. But so you went to the intervention, which is which is pretty, you know, that's a very American thing, isn't it? You do see them on the television. I, I didn't, and I know um, I talked to a guy called Rob Lohman who talked about addiction, and I think his was alcohol actually, but um, again, suicide, being caught, all that sort of stuff, and he he manages interventions. It seems to be a very American thing. And so, and so from there, the deal was go into treatment. Was it, is that, is that what happens? So here's, yeah. And here's how it was presented to me. And I, and I have, I I'm fortunate because my wife 
her, my wife's family stepped up and they, they put this thing together. My sister, my wife's sister and, and my father-in-law, after all the damage, they didn't quite know the extent of the damage at that point, but after what I had done to their daughter and their sister, they were willing to, to put this thing together. And they, they presented it to me in a way of, here's, here's a lifeline for you. You can take it or leave it, but if you leave it, it see you later. You know, and I was ready at that point. I didn't fight it one for one second. I walked into that room and I immediately recognized what we were in for. I listened. Um, I probably said a few things that probably made no sense to anybody, but I was ready, you know, and I, and I said, let's go. I, I you know, it was either that or I was going to kill myself. Yeah. And so when I, I viewed it as a, as a, like I say, a lifeline to me. And so what did the treatments you sort of touched on this a little bit, but what, 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 how did the treatment work? What, what happened? Sure. Yeah. So I, I flew back to um, a treatment facility in, in Minnesota, which is right in the middle of the country. And, you know, it's, it's, and this is one thing we can maybe, I, I like to mention this too. A lot of people don't realize this. It's, it's one of only four at the time. I think it was one of only three treatment facilities in the entire country that was specifically designed to treat gambling addiction. Right. You know, we have treatment centers for alcohol and drug abuse by the thousands, but specifically for gambling addiction. And so I wasn't, I was with gamblers. I wasn't with drug addicts or alcoholics. And so that helped me because it helped me, one, understand that I wasn't alone. Yeah. And two, that I'm not crazy, even though I probably at the time I was, but um, this is, this is happening to other people as well. And so they lay out, a, they lay out a, a plan and they explain to you what's going on and they treat you and they, you know, it's, it's pretty intense therapy for, you know, about eight hours every day for 30 days. And then they send you on your way. And then it's, it's, you know, outpatient treatment from there. And you need to, you need to stick with it in order to, you know, in order to, to live the life that I wanted to live. And I've always been very, aware of that. i never want to, I always want to be on the edge. If you know what I mean? I don't ever want to think that I've got this under control. I don't need treatment or I'm better than this. Yeah. And so, um, so that's, that's how that went. But then three weeks later, I had to go in for my sentencing for my, my criminal convictions. Yeah. And I went in there with the idea of talking to my attorney before that went in, I went in there thinking that, well, we just got out of treatment. You're on the you're on the right path now. The judge will view this favorably, and 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 you won't have to do any jail time. Probably one two years of probation, and you'll be fine. And then, of course, we get in there, and the judge had, after listening to the victims, the victim impact statements. You know, the victims stand up, and they, yeah. the people that I had harmed, and they they talked about what a horrible person I was. <laughs> the judge had different ideas and she sent me to jail and she says, look, I think this will be the best thing for your recovery is for you to go to jail today. Mm. And looking back on it, she was right because that gave me, I had four months in jail that gave me time to, I had nothing else to do, but read my recovery Bible and think about ways to improve my life and improve myself and, and work on myself. And um, without that, I don't know where I would be right now. Interesting. So actually, funnily enough, I mean, but that's also accountability, isn't it? It's paying for your crimes. It's accountability. I, I, I'm a big believer in that. You know, at the time I was terrified, but looking back on it, I don't think that 
And in fact, I know I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I didn't go to jail for four months. Yeah. And do you have you know, to pay and, that money back? Do you have to make restoration or how does yeah, that work? Yeah, I do. Um, and I'm, I still am. You know, I, I've made a lot of progress in that department. Fortunately for me, I, I, I have a good job now and I, you know, my life is so much better. I'm able to pay back all the, all the money I owed. But yeah, it was a significant hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and I'm still paying it back, but I'm doing it. But there's someone in your life who you've talked, actually talked about in passing. You've talked about your father-in-law and you talked about your wife. I mean, they sound to be remarkable people. I married into a family that, you know, I, I didn't deserve, I didn't deserve it, to be honest with you. And, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life respecting that, respecting the family that I, that I married into, respecting and loving my wife, which I do very much, but everything they've done for me after what I did to them, I, I, I don't know another family that would have gone to the lengths that they did. Wow. You know, yeah, obviously my wife, I mean, they were going to do, you know, whatever Erica and my wife wanted basically i think you know she was she was a mess but she didn't want to just cut the cord and, and send me packing she wanted to find out she she dove into addiction she tried to find out and research what was going on with me yeah you know um did she, she would have did just, she experience any form of guilt or anything as, as, as through this process because you often hear that the, the spouses don't you they they carry a sort of an unconscious burden don't they yeah she's she's um she's been pretty tough on herself. Yeah, she has. I mean, she, she, I don't think so much anymore, but for a while she, how did I not, how did I not recognize this? How did I not yeah. see this sooner? How did, how, how, how did I allow you to manipulate and lie to me about your gambling and all this other stuff for so many years? Why didn't I, why didn't I not pick up on that? And it's, it's common. It, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're, we're, Sometimes it's, it's harder for the person closest to you to see it because they don't want to, you know, some of her friends on the outside recognize, wait, this, this is not right. Something's yeah. not right here. Yeah. But the closer you are, sometimes it's tougher to, to, to pick up on. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I got, you're going to spend a lot of time, as you say, being grateful for that intervention, aren't you? So, so now what's the future for you, Patrick, where, where are you going to be with all this? Yeah, so we have, um, at the time, we only had one, one, one son. We had a five-year-old son who, fortunately, he was, he was still pretty young um, at the time. But we have, a, we have another son now who wouldn't even be on this earth if not for my recovery. So that's, that's number one, you know. And so raising my kids and, and being the best husband I can be. But at the same time, I'm pretty passionate about addiction and mental health and i like to help i like to try and help people understand what what it is as best i can mm. and talk to people that are suffering from addiction not it doesn't even have to be gambling addiction but addiction in general yeah. and let them know that you know things can get better you know i one of the one of the things i always remember is early on in my recovery i was at a gamblers anonymous meeting you know probably a year or two into my recovery and and as we do at those meetings, I, I don't even know what I was talking about. I was sharing an experience or something. And I noticed that there was a gentleman next to me and a, what looked to be his son next to him. And the gentleman next to me was blind and didn't say anything. He was just listening. And at the end of it, he came up to me and he says, 
I loved what you talked about. I would really love for you to talk to my son. He's really, he's having a hard time with gambling addiction. Yeah. We don't know what to do. And I spent, I don't know, half an hour talking to his son and he checked himself into a treatment center three days later. And I think it was at that point I realized, you know what? I spent enough time in my life taking from people and causing pain financially, emotionally, all these different ways of hurting people. It's time for me to give back. It's time for me to help. It's time for me to do something positive with this. You know, I, I can go hide in a corner and pretend like it never happened, or I can turn it into a positive, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, brilliant. Well, fantastic and amazing story. So how can people find out more about you or your work or how does how is so, that working? Yeah, and so I have a, a I'm working on a book, you know, and, and this has been quite a process. I didn't realize when I first sat down, I thought, well, I'll just write a book about my, my experience. Well, I'm drawing on all these all of these different situations and circumstances in my life, and it's it's taken longer, but I'll have a book coming out hopefully this summer, if not then late summer, early fall. Uh, I'm working on a website now, a new website, but they can find me on my Twitter. At, it's at Patrick Chester nine, the number nine, and I'll have all of the information on there. And there are a couple things, a couple of resources too, I'd like to mention if you don't mind. Sure, please. Gamblers Anonymous, you know, I know that in the UK, um, there's a Gambler, Gamblers Anonymous hotline as there is uh, here in the US. And, and to me, that was a big, big thing early on in my recovery because I was able to surround myself, like I said, with people like me who understood me and who I can talk to. And also the National Suicide Prevention Line. Right. You know, that's another thing too. Like if you're, if you're, if you're feeling like you're losing it and you're, there's, you don't have anybody else around you and you can't you call that number, you know, there's a number and it's um, 1-800-273-8255. That's the number for the National Suicide Prevention Line in the U.S. Yeah. And so those are all different things, um, resources and, and that sort of thing that people can, can utilize if they need it. Brilliant. That's really powerful. And for us, it's the Samaritans and it's 116-123. So um, it's a different sort of number, but uh, we have a big sure. organization called the Samaritans who work in that area. So um, Patrick, it's not, it's, not, it's not an easy story to listen to and it's, it's a hell of a story to have gone through. But I think if you get that dopamine hit from helping others, as you say, it's going to be, be a life's worth of, work of, worth of reparation, isn't it? And that's a, that's a noble endeavor in a way, isn't it? It's, it's, I don't, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a feeling that I, until, until I started um, down this road, it's a feeling I had never experienced. Yeah. You know, you, you, again, you know, when you, when you cause pain to so many people through your actions and your decisions and your behaviors to reverse that and, and to be able to turn it around and help people as a, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I'm blessed to be able to do that. And, and it, at the same time, it also helps me, it helps to keep me engaged with what I'm doing. I never want to be too far removed from, from my experience. And, and I think, what I went through. and I think the thing for me in terms of a resilience story is that it's the people you surround yourself are a vital part of your life, aren't they? They're a vital part of your life story without that intervention. I mean, I know you said you were ready, but without that intervention, and without that going to jail, you know, having that person that wasn't prepared to compromise. I think that's, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? How these people have effects in our lives. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is, a, this is affected. Well, obviously it affected my whole family, but 
moving forward where we're at now, this is, this has helped a lot of people in my family too. You know, my, my, my wife is, is she, she's, she's in a position now where she, she's able to reach out to people and help people, wives of addicts and spouses of addicts. And she's a voice, you know, and we've all learned through this. My, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, my, my in-law, my mother-in-law and father, we've all learned through this and it's, yeah. it's helping us all, you know? Well, maybe one time we'll have the pair of you back on together. That would be a fascinating conversation. So, um, yeah, no, great? we'd love to. Yeah, my, my wife is, uh, like I say, she's she's very um, passionate about this. And obviously, you know, we've we've been together and spoke, you know, spoke together at, at treatment centers and that sort of thing. And she, her perspective is, <laughs> wow, yeah, very different than mine. You know, That'd her, be something to hear. I think, yeah it's it's fascinating to listen to her talk you know even for me because a lot of things that she talks about i didn't even know because i was i had been removed from society basically for a month in treatment and then four months and a lot of these things i didn't even know so well thank you for coming on and for the candor you've shown us today it's been absolutely fascinating of it's an odd thing to say that i've really enjoyed it but i have but i've it's been a brilliant story so thank you very much for your time patrick Russell, thanks for having me and uh, we'll be in touch soon. I appreciate your time. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.